Whew, my name is Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. Need a pretty steady exposure to Al-Anon, or I tend to take over. I want to thank you for, for those of you who, who were here yesterday, and uh, welcome new people this morning if there's new folks. I'm going to talk for about 45 minutes and look at some of the steps and some of the traditions and a few things I find helpful in recovery. If there's anything I say that's helpful, please use it. And if it's not helpful, don't worry about it. And you'll find that I may say some things you don't agree with. That's really okay. Uh, it's a big world. I was... Um, Part of our tradition is we stay away from controversial things. Specifically, we don't talk about politics, we don't talk about religion, we don't talk about alcohol reform. This is, is uh, uh, the, the program gets put together when prohibition is still a big issue for a lot of people. And in the 19-teens and 1920s, if an area was wet or dry, uh, outlawing alcohol or allowing alcohol, that was a real hot-button political issue. And if your candidate was a, a wet or a dry, uh, there was a lot of, of a screaming and yelling and shouting for days. When Congress uh, was, was discussing whether to uh, outlaw alcohol, it was debated for three months. Can you imagine? All these blowhards, you know. And this is before CNN and 24-hour news, so they, they weren't even doing it live on TV. They were just holding forth. Well, people feel so strongly about that stuff. Should the drinking age be 16 or 18 or 21? Or should we have alcohol or not have alcohol? What about this? What about that? AA has no opinion. We stay out of that controversy. We just stay out. We have a primary purpose, and we're not going to get involved in any other stuff concerning alcohol, legalization, dislegalization. Is that a word? Or uh, drug world, legalization, or, or uh, uh, anyway, all that stuff. And political stuff. A lot of us have very, very strong feelings, and one of the things we've discovered is a lot of us don't agree on much. So if we focused on that, we'd have fistfights and people would be shoved downstairs. And we don't want to do that in recovery. So that the only requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous is a desire to stop drinking. It's not a desire to stop drinking and then you vote the same way I do. That's not it. So we keep that outside. I was at a meeting somewhere years ago. It was in a little town in the high desert. And a bunch of the it was a noon meeting, so, so people were coming in from lunch, and in this little town there was an election coming up for mayor or justice of the peace or something. And half a dozen people in the meeting, and it was not a big meeting, wore buttons supporting one candidate. Didn't sit right with me. <laughs> what happens if I was the wife of the other candidate and I went into a meeting? looking for my first meeting, and I saw my husband's opposition everywhere. I might not have come back. So we want to keep that stuff out of here. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to say that 
I, I have to remember this in terms of political stuff, religious stuff, controversial stuff. A quotation that I learned in school that I have found helpful. This helps me increase my level of tolerance because I'm not always a tolerant person. Uh, if I don't have enough sleep and I've been eating stupidly and you know, I've been, I haven't been getting to many meetings, I get a little bit of a sharp edge. And I think that if you disagree with me, not only are you wrong, you're stupid. See, now that's, that's not helpful. Um, so I have this quotation from a, an American judge, a fellow who sat on the Supreme Court. For a long time, he was put on the court by uh, Franklin Roosevelt. His name was Felix Frankfurter. Wonderful name. When I first heard the name, I thought they were kidding. But that really was his name, Felix Frankfurter. And he was on the court for many, many years, and he said this. There are issues about which reasonable people of goodwill disagree. Now, that sounds shocking in contemporary America because that's not the way we handle things. If you disagree with me, you're going to hell or you're from hell or you should be in hell. You know, we're very sharp. We yell and we scream. We're very confrontational. Some of the people with TV shows are not trying to bring people together. They're trying to get people excited. But Frankfurter, there are issues about which reasonable people of goodwill disagree. And he went on to say, in these matters, the Supreme Court's not going to get involved because people are disagreeing about stuff and, and we're going to let it be. And I have to, in a lot of ways, give people the benefit of the doubt. And this is part of my own religious tradition out of Ignatius Loyola in the 1500s writing in Western Europe. He said, uh, presume that the person you're working with has goodwill. Presume that until it's proven otherwise. But don't start suspicious. Start open-minded and start friendly. They may prove to be unreliable and untrustworthy and dangerous, but don't presume they are. Presume goodwill. And when I'm in my right mind, I do that. I try to treat people fairly and I try to be polite and I try to give people a chance. Uh, in Al-Anon, one of the big conversations we have is the conversation of, of uh, what's my stuff, what's your stuff? What's my issue, what's your issue? What's my life, what's your life? Boundaries, borders, all sorts of things like that. And some of us are, some of us are arrogant and we always put ourselves first. Always put ourselves first. And some of us are very shy and we always put ourselves last. Blanche told me in Al-Anon meetings, uh, in Al-Anon it's not a question of me first, but sometimes it is a question of my turn. And we all get to take a turn. I found that very helpful. Sometimes it's my turn. And sometimes it's your turn. Babies are dependent. They're very needy, and if they don't have a lot of care and support and protection, they're damaged. Adolescents are very independent. Uh, 
Give me land, lots of land with the starry skies above. Uh, leave me alone. I'm fine. Adolescents. Adults are interdependent. My turn, your turn. You go first, I go first. I give, you receive. You give, I receive. That, that's kind of how it works in adult relationships. Some of us get rigid and, and inflexible. It's not a good sign. When I was a much younger person, I was very inflexible. I, I knew what I knew, and I didn't know what I didn't know. But it was... Uh, I found it hard to appreciate or understand another point of view. I just, I was shocked if you disagreed with me. Father Dowling is a Jesuit from the Midwest, St. Louis province. And Father Dowling was a friend of Bill Wilson's and a great friend of Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time, although he was not an alcoholic. But he was a compulsive overeater and a smoker and he had other issues. Father Dowling would say that he would hang out sometimes with some people who suffered from what he called dignosclerosis, a hardening of the dignity, you know, where we just get so impressed with ourselves that we, well, it, it, ego out of control, the dignosclerosis. Humility is to let someone else go first. Let someone else have a turn. Let someone else be heard. One person, one vote. Shocking. Takes a while to get used to the way we do things in the world of 12-step world. Uh, you remember when you say you are. Every member is an equal owner. We all own one share of stock in the program. And the highest rank anybody gets in AA is sober. I was at a meeting a while ago and this guy announced that he was in advanced recovery. <laughs> and I, I have no idea what he's talking about. You know, I think he, he listened to some tapes or took a workshop uh, how crazy. I've noticed that old-timers can talk nonsense and act crazy. And newcomers can tell the truth and save lives. The highest rank any of us get is sober. Comment on God's will. I mentioned it a little bit yesterday. We... We look for God's will for us, the power to carry it out. We try to come to some understanding of a power greater than ourselves. We want to look at a higher power, not a lower power. Uh, what is God's will? What is God's will? What is God's will? Well, with a little bit of history, um, and, and you look at places, and you're going to find people have approached this very differently. Just going back a couple of hundred years, in the 1600s in Western Europe, France was the center of everything. 
and a lot of the best minds and the most well-educated and most prominent people in France believed that the king was king because it was God's will and you were to do the will of the king. If there's a whole political theory called the divine right of kings, they really believed it. So what was God's will? God's will was to do what the king asked. Well, it's fine when your king's not stupid. But what happens when the king's a fool or a creep or a jerk? And I don't want to shock you, but some kings have been all those things. What happens then? Well, revolutions happen. And, and there's a, a reaction to this notion of the divine right of kings. And it's where is... Uh, where do we find God's will? God's will is the will of the people. The will of the people is the will of God. And you start revolutions going on in France and other places and in England. And there will be bloodshed and violence. And, and there will be an American revolution as we break off from England. And we have to get a whole bunch of things about the will of the people. And when we started in 1776, the people were white men who owned property. <laughs> Their will was the will of God. Um, and then we expand the vote. And more people vote, and more people vote, and more people vote, and, and all the people vote, and then all the ballots have to be counted. You know how complicated this is. And somehow in all of this is the will of God. It's not easy. Thomas Jefferson, who I think is an interesting fellow, He was curious and did lots of things and had many interests. When Mr. Kennedy was president, they had a, an evening at the White House for uh, scholars and artists and Nobel Prize winners and musicians, fancy musicians. And Mr. Kennedy said, this is the most distinguished group of intellectual people that has ever met in the White House since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Um, he's a big figure in American history. And Jefferson, Jefferson believed in God, but not in a personal God. Jefferson was a deist. There was a God, but not involved necessarily in my life. Jefferson, Voltaire, a lot of people who are very, very bright and well-educated people believe that God kind of created the universe as a huge clock and then left it alone to work out its future. Thomas Jefferson will rewrite the Bible. I know this is shocking, but he did. He kept it in King James language, but he dropped out everything he thought was stupid. Could you imagine a president doing this? Um, and if you go on to Barnes & Noble or Amazon, you can Google Thomas Jefferson's Bible and you can buy a copy. And he left out a lot of stuff. He was coming to his own understanding. Lots of people do this. What is God's will? 
at the risk of being controversial, may I suggest, uh, don't lie, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet your neighbor's goods, don't covet your neighbor's wife. I know that's controversial. I, someone was poking me on this and a fellow had a little chip on his shoulder against clergy anyway, and I, and I don't, you know, so do I, so relax. Some clergy could use a little Al-Anon. Um, and this, come on, God's will, God's will. And I mentioned, don't lie, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet, how's that? And he said, oh, that sounds so negative, he said. <laughs> but sometimes we know things negatively. I don't want to lie, I don't want to kill, I don't want to steal, I don't want to covet, I don't want to be full of desire for stuff that isn't mine. It knocks me off balance. God's will. I asked my sponsor about this, because this is such a big topic. I mean, there are people on the radio and TV every day telling you what God's will is. They're all experts. Some I just can't stand. Wrong tone of voice. Others I listen to because I, I just argue with them. This is not a sign of mental health. It is not a sign of mental health to be arguing with the television. It's not a sign of mental health. I've done it. Um, so I asked my sponsor, what's God's will? And he said this, it is God's will for each of us to have a life. Go get one. It's God's will for us to be human beings, women and men, grown-ups. It's God's will for us to be part of this community of people. God's will. There's a, I have a fascination for Jewish things. And I have a fascination for Buddhist things. Those things fascinate me. I'm not very much interested in Islam or Hinduism. I'm not as sympathetic. I mean, that's just... So there's a lot about Islam and Hinduism, I don't know. But I kind of, over the years, have paid attention to the rabbis, and I paid attention to some of the the experiences of, of the Buddhist tradition. And one of the great rabbis who is alive, almost contemporary with Jesus, is a rabbi named Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. -L -E -L. He's one of the great rabbis. He's one of the great teachers. He had a way of proceeding and a way of explaining and a way of doing things that people found provocative and interesting. You can still read Hillel. Um, he's still studied in Jewish schools. And Hillel said this, as far as you go, know, what is God's will? Hillel said, don't do to other people what you don't want people to do to you. So if you don't want to be jerked around, don't jerk around other people. If you don't want to be lied to, don't lie to other people. If you don't want to be taken advantage of, don't take advantage of other people. Don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you. It's very simple. It's not a bad way of starting a question on God's will. Well, I hate it when people do that to me. Then don't do it to others. Jesus will take it and say, do unto others 
what you want others to do to you. It's almost the same thing, but the nuance is a little different. But also it's well worth reflecting. Behave towards other people in a way that I want other people to behave towards me. God's will. And that can give me some reason to review my conduct over the day. <laughs> In the tenth step, we talk about a, uh, continue to take personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admitting it. And frequently at the end of the day when I do that, it doesn't have to be long, it doesn't have to be complicated, but to review the day, what's been going on? When did I wake up? Where did I have my meals? Did I eat with people? Did I eat by myself? Did I drive a lot today? How was I behind the wheel? Did I have interactions with folks? Did I show up for work? Did I participate in work? Did I do a lot of internet porn while at the office? Those kinds of questions, you know, that we can ask ourselves. I can look at my behavior and, when wrong, promptly admitting it. And then cleaning up the mess. My experience with being alive is that it's messy. I get into trouble all the time because of the list from Dr. Bob, or not from Dr. Bob, the, uh, uh, the guy from Chicago. He sold himself short. This, this gets me into trouble. This is on page 263 of the big book, edition 4. Selfishness, conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance, ill-temper, sarcasm, resentments. Those get me into trouble. And a lot of times I need to be aware of how unhappy things are in my head. Dr. Paul O., um, sober a long time, lived in Southern California, his story has been in the third and fourth edition of the big book. He's the guy that has uh, acceptance is the key to all my problems. And I think there's a lot of truth there. Um, sometimes the acceptance is uh, I don't belong here. <laughs> I'm going to go somewhere else. We don't fit. Paul was, was, had, a, had a wisdom to him. And uh, I liked listening to him. Also, he was a very funny man. You need to know that about him. Sometimes if you only read page 449 of the third edition, you didn't know how funny he was. One of the quotations of William James that I admire, James said, uh, common sense and a sense of humor are the same things moving at different speeds. A sense of humor is common sense dancing. Sense of humor is an important part of recovery. It helps us lighten up. It helps us ease up. It helps us understand our own situation. And it's really good when we can laugh a little bit at ourselves rather than others. Laugh at ourselves. Because a lot of us surely have goofiness to last for many, many days.
I was at a gathering, men, a manly men's group, and they, this is a group close to where I live, but just far enough away that I'd never go there, but close to where I live. And once a month on a Saturday, all these guys get together and have a meeting and a barbecue for lunch, and then they talk about stuff, and they, they look at the book, and, and uh, it's kind of a, a little ongoing seminar. And I was asked to come one Saturday and hang out with these fellows. So a group of us were talking about the tenth step. How often do you have to admit you're wrong? What gets you into trouble most of the time? And several of us said that one of the reasons we get into trouble is because we have big fat mouths. And we talk before we think. We say stuff that's half-baked. We say stuff that seems amusing, but it's mean. We say stuff that just jumps out, you know. I, I, and I, I can't tell you how often that's happened. Years ago, I, I was living in West Oakland. And I was working with a group of people, and we were having guests in for dinner that night. This isn't fancy. This is pretty low-key. But one of the people I was working at, our guests, they were two priests coming over from San Francisco. And one of the guests, or one of the people I was working with said, oh, I know Father so-and-so. She said, I found him very difficult when I worked with him a few years ago, and I thought he was an asshole. Well, hours pass, you know. Everyone shows up. And I uh, said, oh, Father so-and-so, this is so-and-so. She thought you were a perfect asshole. Now, see, I thought I was being cute and funny. I wasn't. I was being aggressive and embarrassing and rude. I embarrassed him. I embarrassed her. But I thought I'd go for the cute little joke. Aren't I amusing? This is what I'm capable of. Um, and the fellow who was visiting had far more common sense than I, and he just said, that's father asshole. <laughs> and everyone laughed, and it broke the tension. It's one of the great moments. I don't know if you can record that in Louisiana, but it's one of the great moments. Oh, my. But I... I uh, so we were talking at this men's group in, in San Leandro about restraint of tongue and pen. Restraint of tongue, pen, and email, we would say now. And I don't tweet, so. Well, we all like that line, restraint of tongue and pen. And one of the fellow said, where in the big book does it talk about restraint of tongue and pen? Well, we looked. We had four or five of us going through. We looked on all the odd-numbered pages, and we worked on all the even-numbered pages, and we couldn't find that line. So at that point, one of our guys comes in, and, you know, some guys have memories, like, the photo, like a photograph. This guy came in. He was somewhere between 60 and 300 years old. 
And uh, we said, Don, where in the big book does it talk about restraint of tongue and pen? And he stopped, he closed his eyes, he breathed about four times, and then he said, it's not in the big book. It's in the 12 and 12, page 91. That's a little scary. But it is on the section on step 10. Page 90 is talking about this spot check inventory. It is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us, so it's my stuff. Well, see, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, I really don't. I, I just, sometimes it, I'm the wrong person in the wrong place, and it's no one's fault. It just doesn't fit. Round pegs, square holes. And I don't have to force myself into a place where I don't fit. Some things just don't go together. Oil and, oil and water, to use a contemporary image. If somebody hurts us and we are sore, we are in the wrong also. Maybe yes, maybe no. Are there no exceptions to this rule? What about justifiable anger? If somebody cheats us, aren't we entitled to be mad? Can't we be properly angry with self-righteous folk? For us of AA, these are dangerous exceptions. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. And that's something I can talk about. I don't want to live in a lot of anger and I don't want to live in a lot of fear, regardless of the cause. And some people I'm just allergic to and I'm going to leave them alone. And there are things that get me into trouble and I want to stay away from them. There's a great line in the big book and it says, avoid the deliberate manufacture of misery. That means I need to know some situations that make me miserable and I don't want to go there. Few people have been more victimized by resentments than have we alcoholics. We love them. Holding on, holding on. We hate change. It mattered little whether our resentments were justified or not. I have met some church people who are full of anger for a number of very good reasons. And they're just crazy. They're just crazy. Even if your anger is justified, it poisons everything. A burst of temper could spoil a day. And a well-nursed grudge can make us miserably ineffective. I love the image of a well-nursed grudge. You know, holding the little grudge like a baby and having it feed at your breast. You know, come on, little grudge. You just get strong, you know. A well-nursed grudge. Years ago, he treated me bad, and I'm just going to lick that wound. I'm going to lick that wound. I want to keep that alive. In my family, we did that a lot. Some people really did keep score. And there were, in crazy families, people get disowned and people get threatened and people don't get spoken to for years. And 
I guess it was during the Second World War, and it's 1942 or 1943, and out at my family's they had, on Mother's Day, they would have a, a barbecue, and they barbecue chicken. That was Mother's Day. And um, a whole bunch of people were there, and of course, they were having a couple of beers. And somebody criticized Mr. Roosevelt. And my father, who was a patriot, my father said, you do not criticize the President of the United States in wartime. Well, everyone had had a couple beers, so the guy who had a couple beers was just louder in his criticism of Mr. Roosevelt. And they got into a shouting match, and it was very nasty, and people were called traitors and things like that, a lot like today. And uh, uh, there was a whole group of relatives that we never spoke to again. 1942. I'm born in 1947. In 1965, we were having a family reunion for the first time since that unhappy Mother's Day picnic in 1942. And uh, everyone was coming, and a group of relatives were coming up the driveway that I had never met before. I'd never seen. I'd never heard about. Uh, and my mother turned to me and said, act like nothing happened. A well-nursed grudge. <laughs> Nor were we ever skillful in separating justified from unjustified anger. And I buy that. I mean, I, when I'm full of anger, I do not want to be making decisions. I do not want to be talking. And I do not want to be involved with people because I will act in an angry way. That's real clear. And in that situation, I'm off base and I can be dangerous, and I can add to the craziness. So I have to go do something to deal with my anger, which is why exercise is good, or um, yard work is good, or something. Something physical is good for me. Anger, that occasional luxury of more balanced people, could keep us on an emotional jag indefinitely. These emotional dry benders often led straight to the bottle. This sure was Bill Wilson's experience. He'd get upset, he'd get mad, and he'd be drunk. Now, it's interesting in dealing with alcoholics. Alcoholics are, get into trouble in different ways. Some of us, we get drunk when things fall apart. Some of us get into trouble, we get drunk when things are going well. I had a friend like that, he... When he was in trouble, he went to meetings and didn't drink, and he went to meetings and didn't drink, and was a good AA member. And then he'd be sober for six months or a year or three years, and they'd promote him. And he'd be drunk in 24 hours. He couldn't stand success. Others of us can't stand failure. What we don't like is discomfort, and we self-medicate. Other kinds of disturbances, jealousy, envy, self-pity, hurt, pride, did the same thing. We can get drunk over that kind of discomfort. These huge emotional outbursts I want to keep an eye on. The world belongs to the alert, not to the sedated, to the alert. And I want to be aware of and alert to my own craziness. A spot check inventory taken in the midst 
of such disturbances can be a very great help in quieting stormy emotions. Why am I so upset? Why am I so upset? The quick inventory, this 10th step, is aimed at our daily ups and downs, especially those where people or new events throw us off balance and tempt us to make mistakes. I want to be aware of this stuff. This is why a lot of us will review the day at the end of the day. What's gone on today? And, and try to get as specific as possible. How have I spent my time? Well, everything was pretty good until about 11 o'clock. And then what happened? Well, we started gossiping. And all of a sudden, I was cruel and mean and scary. How did that happen? Well, I, I want to be aware of this. I want to be aware of my own patterns and my own rhythms. In all these situations, we need self-restraint. Self-restraint. Honest analysis of what is involved, a willingness to admit when the fault is ours, and an equal willingness to forgive when the fault is elsewhere. It was my fault. I mentioned, I think, yesterday morning that little accident I had in Los Angeles when I wanted to turn left and the other cars wouldn't let me. It was not fun to admit to the insurance companies afterwards that it was my fault. But it was my fault, and I get to pay the penalty. Not happily, but paid. We need not be discouraged when we, we fall into the error of our old ways, for these disciplines are not easy. We shall look for progress, not perfection. Progress. Progress. Uh, little bits of change mean a lot. Keeping my mouth shut sometimes when I could so easily say something that would not help, it's, it's a benefit. Our first objective will be the development of self-restraint. This carries a top priority rating. When we speak or act hastily or rashly, the ability to be fair-minded and tolerant evaporates on the spot. To be fair-minded and tolerant, there are issues about which reasonable people of goodwill disagree. Shocking. One unkind tirade or one willful snap judgment can ruin our relation with another person for a whole day or maybe a whole year or a couple of decades if you're in my family. Nothing pays off like restraint of tongue and pen. We must avoid quick-tempered criticism. You know what's wrong with you? I was somewhere in the middle of the country in the last couple of years and giving a talk like this to uh, women in prison. And it was a, 
all, they were all there for alcohol and drugs, like in so many prisons with so many people. And I was going and I was doing a bit of AA and a bit of Al-Anon and, and, and encouraging other 12-step programs and, and trying to be helpful. And I mentioned that I was an AA person who went to Al-Anon, got sober first and went to Al-Anon. Anyway, it came time for the break. Went out for lunch with a group and a lady came up to me. A woman came up to me and said, uh, I've got lots of questions about what you said. Well, now that's attack. Even I notice that voice is attack. I who am so spiritual. Um, and I, I found my, I braced, I went for, for the book because she's after me. Well, what upset her was she had never heard that you could be in AA and Al-Anon before. She thought that was unthinkable. And 20 years ago, that's true. I, a lot of, not a lot of people were in both programs. 20 years ago, although a lot of people needed both programs 20 years ago. It was a new thing. And I, and anyway, I, I mentioned this to one of my friends who, who's, who's circumspect, a fellow who's thoughtful. And he said, well, my experience when, when someone comes up to me in that tone of voice saying, I've got lots of questions, what that really means is, I've got lots of answers. That's what that really means. Um, so I could have hit back, but I didn't have to. I, I was centered, act, don't react, act, don't react. And as, as she, I asked her to explain what were her questions, and it was, how can you be in both programs and don't you know? And I, I, my experience, I don't want to argue. I don't want to argue. I don't want to argue. I simply said, my experience is both programs are very helpful. I'm not going to argue this. Well, she and I are not best friends. <laughs> Which is fine. <laughs> uh, we must avoid the quick-tempered criticism or furious power-driven argument. The same goes for sulking or silent scorn. That's for the introverts, sulking and silent scorn. These are emotional booby traps baited with pride and vengefulness. Our first job is to sidestep the traps. When we are tempted by the bait, and that's what it is, it's bait. You can smell it. You can smell it. And if you like that kind of thing, when I was drinking, I loved that kind of stuff. You know what your problem is, and then you just launch. You know? um, somebody uh, referred to me as being all piss and vinegar. I thought that was a compliment. It's 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 not it's not a compliment. It's it's uh, but you know all uh, combative and argumentative and let's find something to argue about and let's have a couple more drinks. Uh, I don't like living like that anymore. Used to. These are emotional booby traps baited with pride and vengefulness. Our first job is to sidestep the traps. And inventories help that. You know, what went wrong? What went wrong? What blew up? 
How did I know I was in trouble? What was my mistake? Well, it's, you know, three o'clock in the morning and they've been drinking for six hours and maybe doing a little crystal meth. So why did you think you could drop by and have a conversation? Side step the traps. Well, your brother-in-law has been drinking for five days and he'd like to talk to you. The answer is no. You know, I, I don't have to take every phone call. There are some people I don't return their phone calls. I don't like some people. And there are some people I just can't help, although they'd like me to, but I just can't help them. I do have a fellow, uh, he's a taxi cab driver and uh, crystal meth freak. Is that redundant? I mean, do you have a lot of taxi drivers who do crystal meth here in Louisiana? We sure have them on, on the West Coast. And this guy wants me to be a sponsor, wants me to fix him. He's had a lot of conversation. He wants to have a lot of conversation. He wants to have a lot of conversation. And I've never done crystal meth, and I've never driven a taxi cab. I can't help him. I can't help him. I tried, and I, he makes me completely crazy. And I had to tell him, you know, I, what you need to do is find an NA sponsor who will call you on your crap. And I, can, I, I don't know your world. I don't know the vocabulary. I don't have the experiences. So the last time he called, I really need help. I said, I know you need help, and it's in Narcotics Anonymous, and I can't help you. And I hung up. And I felt like I kicked a puppy. I can't help him. Um, Sidestep the traps. I'll pretend to help him. He'll pretend to tell me the truth. We'll both be drunk. He has to talk to someone who's been there. When we are tempted by the bait, we should train ourselves to step back and think. For we can neither think nor act to good purpose until the habit of self-restraint has become automatic. The habit of self-restraint. Dr. Paul, who I mentioned at the beginning of this hour, said uh, he was grateful he didn't have a loudspeaker attached to his brain. Because my experience with my own brain, and it's, 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 it's a fluttery little guy, um, frequently the first thought or two or five aren't helpful. They're angry or they're mean or they're scared. Just conversation going on. And I don't always know what to say right away. And I need to have some quiet sometimes to make a decision. I was off seeing my boss, uh, this was in December, about some important stuff. And we were going to have a very serious conversation about some, you know, stuff. And we were there in conversation and he said something. And to protect myself, I lied. It went, it, and it was so quick. It was so quick. It wasn't a thought-out lie. It wasn't an org. It just jumped out a little lie. And soon as it jumped out, I knew it was a lie. But then I didn't know what to do. Do I just say I lied? 
I didn't know what to do. It took me 24 hours. And then I sent him an email. I mean, it wasn't a bad lie. But it was a self-protective lie. Anyway, it took me 24 hours, and I, I sent him an email, and I just said, John, about ABC, that was a lie. Here's, the, here's, here's what was really going on. And it just clarified it. There is a part of living the program is to tell the truth and try to be of service and try to build some kind of community. Lying, cheating, stealing, my ego getting in the way all the time does not create community. It does not create a safe place. It's a dangerous place when I do that. My way or the highway is usually spoken by alcoholics. I've just noticed that over the years. And not alcoholics in recovery. Two points, then we'll take a break. Then we're going to come back and I want to talk about the 11th step in prayer and meditation on a Sunday morning. On Father's Day, on this almost time for summer, longest day of the year. The first and second traditions um, force us to think differently than we normally would do as active alcoholics and addicts. A lot of us, if you're an active addict, an active alcoholic, you're mostly thinking about your next drink, your next fix, your next score. The first tradition says our common Welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on AA unity. What we're asked to do is think about the common good. And that's not ordinary for most of us. Most of us have never thought about the common good in our lives. I know what I want. And my understanding was, if I get my way, that is the common good. And it's not the common good. The common good means there's going to be give and take. And for the common good, I'm going to have to leave some stuff behind, and you're going to have to leave some stuff behind. I was at a meeting in Northern California over the holidays. I was very young in recovery, and I was very raw, and uh, many things I didn't know. The only tool I really knew was getting to a meeting, and it's a good tool. But when I was stressed, when I was complicated, when I was uh, having uh, problems, if I got to a meeting, I could breathe. If I got to a meeting, there was oxygen. And if I could be at a meeting for an hour or so, I could maybe think my way through the problem or at least relax a little bit or get some kind of, 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 of lightened, uh, more lightened situation. So this was in Northern California in a little town, and I think it was either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So everyone's happy, right? I was visiting my oldest brother's family, and they're all crazy. And I was in a little town in the middle of nowhere. Went to an AA meeting because I was stressed out, capital S, capital O. There was a, a regular at the meeting, 
a good old boy with a cowboy hat, if I remember correctly. Uh, and he was it's from one of the rural areas in California, and there he was. And there was a woman who was also visiting her family, and her eyes were this wide. She was sitting there frantic. And then there was a newcomer, and the newcomer was a young man who had a lot of rough edges, we would say. So that was there were four of us at the meeting. Merry Christmas. And um, the guy who was the local fellow began the meeting and wanted to know if there was a topic. And the uh, young man who was the local newcomer said, yeah, 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 I'm very upset. I want to know, why won't they let me bring my knife into a meeting? That was the topic. And the old-timer said, uh, Johnny, none of us bring our knives into the meeting. The common welfare comes first. And the common welfare is all of us leave our knives outside the meeting. I thought that was handled very, very well. I just wanted to run out the door. You know? The common welfare. What's the... Uh, um, for a meeting starting on time and ending on time, it's the common welfare. Letting people come to meetings, the common welfare. Uh, safety at meetings in terms of physical and emotional safety. Uh, not gossiping at meetings, common welfare. Safe people, safe places. We had a, a place I go to meetings sometimes is, is, there are some awkward and difficult people who show up, not all of them recently sober, not all of them recently bathed. So it startles some people. And we have a couple of big fellows there. And if someone comes in who seems a little jumpy, maybe a little scary, one or two of these great big guys just goes and sits next to him. All the women relax. It's going to be okay. So these couple of big guys at the meeting are there for a purpose. They're kind of our sergeant at arms, although we haven't elected them as such. But the common welfare comes first. So it's that balance between people being safe and people being welcomed. And that's not always an easy thing. There were big fights on the West Coast over smoking meetings, non-smoking meetings. Common welfare. The common welfare is people can breathe, seems to me. But I know, I know, I'm an outsider. Um, Common welfare. Another thing that's new for a lot of us who are addicts and alcoholics, uh, we talk about group conscience. A group conscience. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. An awful lot of us have no idea what a conscience is. Conscience. This is a big conversation. It's that fundamental sense of right or wrong. Conscience. And some people don't have one. And some of us have very distorted ones. And some of us have very tiny ones. And I think over time, conscience can grow. But that sense of right and wrong. My experience of my conscience most recently is not it does say, Tom, you're doing great. That's usually not my conscience. What my conscience 
does is at three in the morning and I'm suddenly awake and the words my conscience says are, Tom, you're a jerk because of something that happened in the last day or two or three. Something I put a spin on or something I didn't speak up about or something I had neglected or something I had overlooked. My conscience usually lets me know there's work to do. And in terms of conscience, sometimes it's a very uncomfortable feeling. There's a remarkable movie made 10 or 15 years ago now, Schindler's List. It's a, it's a very serious film. It's for adults. It's a long film. It's a Holocaust film. It's about the murder of, of so many people in Eastern Europe during the Second War. And the, the, main, the hero of the story is a guy named Oskar Schindler, who's an alcoholic. He's also a German businessman, and the war is on. And a lot of people make money in war, in factories and ammunitions and stuff. And Oskar Schindler... Wanting to make some money and, and a business, and he, he moves into Poland and he ends up making ammunitions with a lot of Jewish slave labor. None of that bothers him. He's there, he's doing stuff, he gets drunk, he does this, he does that. But he discovers in the course of his time out there that people are being systematically killed. That shocks him. And he discovers, much to his surprise at the age of 46, that he has a conscience. He can't tolerate this bad behavior. A lot of other stuff didn't bother him, but this I can't do. And all of these people who work for him, their lives will be spared if their names can be put on a list of useful workers rather than extraneous population. And Oscar Schindler fights to have the lives of these people saved. Um, war is over and he's not treated as a hero and he never gets over. Kind of dies neglected. But his conscience enabled him to act heroically in this very difficult circumstance. Uh, if you're interested in you know, looking at conscience as an adult phenomenon, I would recommend you take a look at Schindler's List and watch Otto uh, Oscar Schindler struggle with his fundamental sense of right and wrong and how he cannot pretend nothing's going bad here. It's a fascinating subject. Oh, well, let's take a break. Let's come back in 15, and we'll talk about the 11th step.